Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Yeah, and I just think back when I was a young lawyer, I was paranoid. Probably ask the same witnesses the same questions, getting the same answers, and it's a it's a mistake I think we've all made at some extent when we were younger lawyers. And I guess the lesson to be learned is you have to have some confidence that they are listening and they are getting it. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials podcast. As always, I am uh, your host Steve Lowry here with uh, Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. I'm I'm, I'm pumped for our episode today. I know, I know. I'm really excited about it. And uh, and I'm, I'm glad to say that I'm at least healing up a little bit from our last podcast where I had virtually no voice and now it's coming back to me slowly. <laughs> I do I do miss the uh, the sort of pubescent, prepubescent <laughs> Steve with the voice cracking. Right, right, it was fun exactly. while it lasted. In the middle of the really good points, just so I, you know, to highlight them. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure people take you really seriously. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, um, well, today's guest, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this. So we've got uh, Jeff Kroll from, Cat, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, Jeff, and I apologize already because you told me how to say it. Kavini, Kavni yep. Kroll. No, say it. Kavni. Kavni. Kavni Kroll. Kavni Kroll. I think, right. I think that okay. pubescent comment just threw you off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, your game is way off. Right, I was, exactly. I, I went too harsh too early, Steve. That's my yeah, bad. Exactly. So, uh, so Kavni Kroll, I got it now. Uh, so, uh, Jeff is in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, great trial lawyer up there, and, and I'm really excited about the, uh, the case that we're going to talk about. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's, uh, you know, it's very humbling because I feel like after watching and listening to a bunch of your podcasts, it was kind of like a who's who. And I'm afraid today may be who's that. So I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, I I can tell you, Jeff, looking at your your list of verdicts and settlements, nobody should be asking who is that. I mean, you definitely have been doing this uh, really well at really high quality for a very long time. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, you're definitely uh, a... I'm looking forward to our to our talk. Yeah, yeah, Mike. So let me let me just give a little bit of background about Jeff, uh, so that everybody can know who we're talking about. So, like I said, Jeff is a partner at at Caveney Kroll, and you can look up Jeff at CaveneyKroll.com. And let me just spell that. That's K A V E N Y K R O L L dot com. So CaveneyKroll.com. Uh, Jeff uh, has been uh, practicing law for. Uh, looks like almost 30 years, not quite there. Um, right and there. Jeff, Jeff has been selected uh, uh, as uh, the best uh, from by the best lawyers for uh, personal injury lawyers in Illinois for multiple years. Uh, I think for the last seven years or maybe even more in a row. Uh, he's been selected as one of the top 100 trial lawyers in Illinois and has been uh, selected as a uh, leading uh, attorney and super lawyer in Illinois every year since uh, 2005. Um, he was awarded uh, by the Illinois Institute of Continuing Legal Education with its Addis E. Hall Award for all of the teaching he does. Uh, he's lectured, I think, uh, last count I saw over 150 times with uh, oh, well over 100 articles. Uh, Jeff also teaches trial advocacy at his alma mater of DePaul University and at Northwestern Law School. And he um, uh, is published in the Anatomy of a Personal Injury Lawsuit, uh, which is published by Trial Guides of the American Association of Justice. And um, and then I should just say, Jeff, uh, 
like I said, I mean, when I look at your, your list of accomplishments, your verdicts and settlements, I mean, you have handled cases in just about every branch of, of trial law, uh, medical malpractice, premises, trucking, product liability, uh, sports injuries, bus accidents, bicycle, and gotten consistently, um, um, you know, uh, large verdicts and settlements. Uh, multiple of them have been uh, um, in the eight-figure range or more than $10 million. And the verdict that we are talking about today is in the uh, rarefied era of a nine-figure verdict for a personal injury lawsuit, which uh, uh, you just don't see very often. No, you don't. And it was, um, it was a perfect storm. You know, yeah. we had a tremendous trial team, which we'll talk about. And tell you what, having a great plaintiff matters. Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, we've said that so many times on this show that, uh, you know, a great plaintiff can make, uh, you know, a, a more middle of the road case great and a, a, a bad plaintiff, unfortunately, can make a really good case bad, uh, you know, because a lot of the time the jury is going to come down to whether or not they believe and like your, your client. And if they do, uh, you know, then uh, they're going to want to help them out. And if they don't, then obviously they're not going to want to help them out. It's so true. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this case. I'm going to give just a just a, a short background, and then um, and then and then we'll get into the uh, specifics of it. But the name of this case is uh, Tyranny Darden, the city of Chicago. It was tried in Cook County, Illinois, uh, in 2017, and the result of the uh, case is, uh, was 148 million dollars, 190,997 dollars to be. Exact. But this involved a uh, pedestrian shelter at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport uh, that essentially hadn't been inspected, um, was um, deteriorating, and the anchors for it uh, were essentially missing. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, and it was a uh, particularly windy day, uh, if you can believe that, in Chicago. In, in the Windy City, go uh, right here. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and this, this I, one thing I couldn't tell, Jeff, is did the, the, the pedestrian shelter sort of blow off of its base and then land on top of your client, uh, Tierney Darden? Yeah, what happened was there was some wind that came in and it was also raining. These are these shelters where if you walk outside an airport, if it's raining, you could stand inside them so you're not getting... Well, the rain was blowing in towards the shelter, so mom... Tierney and Tierney's sister go behind the shelter. There's supposed to be seven bolts bolting this down. There was only two in the back. And once the wind gust caught this, it just flipped over and 750 pounds of the shelter landed on Tierney's back and literally severed her spine. Oh my God. Yeah. And it, it I mean, it just sounds like uh, such a terrible injury uh, uh, obviously caused her to be a paraplegic, but but beyond that, just the amount of pain she went through because of the way this uh, the the break happened, um, which I want to talk to you about uh, with some of the experts you had. Um, so, and then it also looks like that not only was Tierney uh, injured, but also both her mom and her sister were also injured and were at least named in the initial lawsuit. Uh, but it looks like by the time it went to trial, maybe it was just on behalf of tyranny. Is that right? Yeah. And, now, and we'll talk about that a little later because we did a number of focus groups and the mom and the sister had minimal injuries and their injuries were, were kind of weighing down our verdict, right. so to speak, in the focus groups. So we made a strategic decision to settle those for nominal amounts and just focus on tyranny. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and she obviously was uh, just uh, terribly injured. But, um, but essentially, you know, so that's that that is the basics of the case and, um, and what happened and then and what I really want to talk about um, is, uh, you know, how you obtain the verdict that you got and, and, and you sent us the verdict form, which has a number of areas. But one thing I should mention is that this $148 million verdict does not involve a punitive damages verdict at all. It is a, a purely compensatory damages uh, verdict, which for our listeners who don't know, means that this is all uh, uh, money in, or, in, in theory, it's to bring back tyranny to the place she was before the um, um, collapse happened. Uh, so that um, it's as if in the eyes of the law, it's as if this had never happened, which obviously can never truly uh, get back to, but, but there's no, no part of that is meant to punish the city of Chicago or any of the, uh, or for any of its, its actions. And that, that's exactly right. In, in Illinois, you cannot have um, a punitive damages count against a municipality, a city. So we knew going in that in order to maximize these damages, you know, we had to focus on various elements of her compensatory damages, but yet we still had an issue with the city of Chicago as a defendant because the city of Chicago is crying poor mouth all the time in the newspapers. Right. They're in a deficit. We have to raise taxes. And that was a big concern of ours um, proceeding throughout this litigation. So, so let's talk, uh, Jeff, because when this case first started out, it sounded like the city of Chicago was defending this case uh, on the liability side of it. But by the time you got it to trial, um, it, they had admitted liability. And, um, and, and in reading some of the documents you sent us, and I, w- I want to talk about this uh, in detail, it, I can only describe this as what uh, I would call an old-fashioned beatdown uh, that you did on yeah. the city of Chicago because you had a number of witnesses that you deposed uh, who were for the, worked for the airport or for the airport commission. And uh, essentially it sounded like just nobody had any idea what was going on and nobody had ever done anything. Yeah, and it's, it, you know, to take this back to when this occurred. So this occurred, because I think as, as, as a trial lawyer, you'd appreciate this. And, you know, the same with Yvonne and, and your listeners. Incident happens August 2nd of 2016, which is a Sunday. That Monday, I get a phone call from the father of Tierney Darden. And I'm in the midst of a trial. And he says, my daughter was injured at O'Hare and she hurt her back. That's all I knew. My boss at the time, my, my partner, Pat Salvi, tremendous trial lawyer, goes out, comes back that night and says, this could be special. We file a lawsuit on that Wednesday, a couple days later. It's one of the lead stories on the news station. On Thursday, we go in to preserve the evidence, you know, make sure they don't destroy anything. It is the lead story. They follow us in the court. Um, investigative teams from major news stations here in Chicago were inspecting the shelters. Then the city of Chicago starts to remove the shelters. The news crews were out there filming this. And, you know, no civil case in, in Illinois has ever garnished this kind of activity. This is, this is rarefied air. And it was a major rush for us, but it's, it's major stress. You know, the, the higher the monkey climbs up the tree, the more his butt is exposed. Oh, yeah. we, we, were on TV, we were on TV all the time, which is fun, but it gets a little nervous. But, but going back to the liability, you know, just to put things in perspective, we took – 26, I I took all 26 liability depositions within two months. I was focusing on liability. Um, um, 
Tara Devine was focusing on family and Pat Selvey, you know, was going to focus on some of the damages. But the, the first deposition, I knew there was going to be finger pointing within the city. And it was amazing to me. But the city still had at what they believed a valid defense of act of God. Even if everything was going wrong here, even if we did screw up, act of God. And what I did initially is I hired three meteorologists, two for me and one I said, I want you to be, assume I'm a defense attorney, get that wind as high as you can. And the reason we did that is these particular shelters were designed to withstand peak winds of 90 miles an hour for three seconds or more in a sustained wind over a period of time you know, of roughly 60 or 70 miles an hour. Our experts could not get the wind above 52 miles an hour, which told us this act of God defense was going to fail. And eventually it did. Right. Well, well and, and go ahead. Yvonne. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we kind of um, related to the finger pointing issue The in reading sort of the, the documents that you sent us and some of the summaries of the witnesses testimony that, they there this was sh- this was shocking to me as like a traveler as like a normal person yeah. that these structures were just not being inspected for years and nobody knew who was supposed to do it they just knew it wasn't their job it's exactly right and and, and it it all fell on what's you know O'Hare like every other airport or, or major entity has different divisions and everybody pointed to the facilities division as the, the, the division responsible for the safety of these structures. But when I deposed the former head and the head, they had no idea that they were responsible for this. And one of the guys on videotape in his deposition started laughing. He goes, that's news to me. And I'm thinking if that, if that plays at a trial, him laughing, that's right. news to me, game over. Right. And I, I assumed at that moment in time, and that was the third deposition. We had 23 more liability depositions of city of Chicago employees. I kept waiting for them to admit liability and they weren't, they were fighting us. And I, I didn't get it. This episode of the great trials podcast is brought to you by legal technology services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. How long did they go? How long was it that, that, they, that these structures were just not being 
inspected for sort of safety or structural integrity at all? A little over two decades, two decades oh without God. an individual. But we had evidence that someone had had made modifications. No, not a single document was produced that showed when the doc, when when these modifications were made. Not a single document was produced to show when certain structures were removed. It was it was sloppy, to be very candid with you. And you know this was not a punitive damage case, but it it was getting ugly. The liability for what the city was doing. And, you know, candidly, you know, you listen to the Brian Panishes of the world, you get a little nervous when someone starts to admit fault right. because they're hoping for a discount. They're, they're, they're trying to get their credibility back. And I think it was lost by that time because of, of the damages witnesses, which we'll get into in a second. But the liability was crystal clear to us. And it was about five months, Yvonne, before trial where they admitted fault. And then it was a damages only trial. And that's when we really started focusing on our focus groups. You know, we did four different focus groups and it, that was the key to our case. Got it. Got it. Well, so, um, I guess I'm sorry, Steve, I keep interrupting you. I just okay. have, I have one more question because I'm trying to picture what that's the, that pubescent comment. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much better when his, when he uh, had kind of lost his voice <laughs> and I was just talking over him and there was nothing he could do about it. Um, can you describe a little bit for both for our listeners and selfishly for me, what these, what these structures were like, how they, like what they were made out of and. and yeah, they were fiberglass, fiberglass structures with glass around it. They weighed 750 pounds. If, in most major cities, like if you're waiting for a bus, if you're waiting for a taxi cab, you may see these structures and, and okay. they're like on the street. And at O'Hare, this, this place was littered with these structures. Unfortunately, no one ever checked these structures. Like I said, they were supposed to have seven bolts in them. After inspecting the airport, we found several with no bolts. We found some with one bolt. We found, and yet they had no idea who changed these, who was responsible for them. And it was just, it was, you know, one hand didn't know what the other hand was doing there. And no one admitted as to what they knew or when they knew it. And that to me was, was the atrocity of what was going on because O'Hare is one of the larger airports in this country right. with, with millions of customers going back and forth. And that's why I think this story had, had, had legs is, but for the grace of God, this could be anyone that this happened to. Right. Well, and, and I, I wanted to ask you, I noticed one of the guys, I think it sounds like right after this happened on the, either the day of or the very next day, they sent the facilities manager around and he, he sort of documented all of the uh, uh, dangerous shelters and actually had five or six of them removed within just a few days. Is that right? Exactly. And then the, once the news crew started getting out there and inspecting them and, and, you know, if you Google this incident, you'll see the various stories where they're literally shaking these 750 pound shelters. Now they're supposed to be essentially immovable and they're shaking these and all of a sudden they go into court, the city saying, we'd like to essentially remove them all. And when the news stations are covering that live in Chicago, which is a pretty big metropolitan area, right. and it's like a lead story. You know, I knew this was big, but I just didn't know how big this would be. 
Yeah, it'll definitely make me look at these things when we go to yeah. airports. Because I, I was just thinking when I was reading about your case that I was with my daughter up in Boston and they had these, you know, on the side of the street and they actually had heaters sure. inside of them. Yep. And I don't know yep. if, they, if they have that in Chicago, but I, I, I was like, this is pretty cool. You just step inside, turn on the heater and you get warmed up for a little bit on a, on a cold mm-hmm. winter day. But uh, hey, Chicago's tough. We don't we don't need the heaters. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe Boston, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to hear from our Boston. Uh, yeah, back. of course. I'll take Tom Brady in a nanosecond. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah. I mean, the other thing is too. I don't know. I just think about how much regulation centers around an airport. You know, and like that. I can't bring in a bottle of water and I know, I know obviously there are other concerns. I'm not trying to oversimplify things, but I just think about highly, how highly regulated I think of airports, where you can park, how close to the airport you can park. The idea that there'd be all these structures throughout the kind of airport property that haven't been inspected in, in over 20 years is like, it, it really blows my mind. Well, O'Hare had, if I'm not mistaken, over 7,500 acres. And one of their arguments that they made throughout the course of depositions is we can't be responsible for every foot, every yard, every acre of this property. And when we did focus groups, they were like, you, you bet you are. Yeah, How absolutely. is that any different than anyone else? And it, it's funny you say that, Yvonne. They, they've got so many, you know, things that we can't do as passengers, but yet as owners of the property, hey, we, we're we're too big to look at everything. Right. And, uh, you know, that's why I think they were smart for, for admitting fault, because even though we could not get punitive damages, I think a jury could have, quote, punished the city of Chicago for their reckless conduct here. Right. So, so that is one question I had, you know, because you had some really great evidence on just the lack of, uh, of anybody, you know, taking responsibility, anybody doing anything uh, about these structures. Nobody's looking at them. Once they see, once this happens, they then go decide pretty much they're all dangerous. Um, so when you tried this case, did, none of that came into evidence? None of it came in the evidence, but what was interesting, you know, I, you know, we, we kind of, I did the opening statement, Pat and Patrick Selvey, my, my former partners, did jury selection. How many of you people have heard about this? I would say out of 44 potential jurors, 26, 27 had heard about this incident. They, they knew about it. So I found that interesting because I, I thought, I found that as a positive, right. as, a, as a big positive that they knew this was a big deal. Because, you know, I don't know about Atlanta and, and Savannah, but, but when you're in the news, you know, before my opening statement, I got off the elevator and every news station was filming me. There were sketch artists. Trust me, I just got off trial last week and there was like two people in the courtroom. Right. The whole time. <laughs> so this was, this was news to me. It was so cool. You know, my son at the time was 15. He never saw me in court. And after the opening statement, it was the first time he'd ever seen me. He comes up to me, he's like, Dad, I got to say something to you. And I'm thinking, finally, this idiot is learning something. And he goes, I think I'm going to be on, I think I'm going to be on TV. <laughs> but it was, it was a, it was a rush, but it, you know, when they offered $30 million right before trial, I saw and that. I got to tell you, that's. That one, you know, I slept like a baby. You know, I sleep for two hours, wake up, cry, and get myself back to sleep because this is this is real dollars, and you've got a real client. And our focus group, and you know, 
God loved the Pat Selby's of the world who, you know, I worked with, with his son and a couple other people, you know, we, we did our research and, and you two know, as well as anyone, we typically try our bad cases and settle our good ones. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and we made a decision here in this case, we're trying this one. Unless they make it really tough, we're trying it. And we'll talk more about the focus groups, but that's kind of what led us to our decision. We have to go forward on this. Well, you know, it's interesting when you were saying before that like, uh, you know, having all the uh, media attention is uh, exciting, but it also adds just a lot of pressure, which it does. You know, adding pressure, you know, is knowing that, you know, you've turned down $30 million and uh, obviously it's the right decision. But I mean, that that is um, th- that takes, I'll just say, guts, you know, uh, you know, for you to to decide and tell your client, look, we, we can do better than that at trial. And uh, I, I really applaud it. It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. But it is it, hard it, to turn down. Oh, <laughs> that's you're you're you're. <laughs> There's understatements in this world. And that's one of them. <laughs> right. But but it, it but but our jury research, our focus group work. You know, it, when I was at Selby's office, we we focus grouped the heck out of this case, and we wanted to find the floor, the worst case scenario, and it was above thirty. And you know, we thought, okay, they came up with thirty to start. They're definitely going to come up with more, and they didn't. Yeah. So it, it it turned out to be one of those who blinks first. And, you know, we weren't blinking, neither were they. And, you know, I'm sitting there like giving my opening statement, like, you guys sure you're not going to offer more? This is 30 million is a lot, but uh, it was, it was nerve wracking. But when it was I, fun. So the sketch artist made me look kind of fat. So just as I don't <laughs> <FYI, laughs> It's always they the artist. Had 10 pounds. <laughs> yes. <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I was thinking about that too, because I saw there was some news clips about this as the trial was going on. And, uh, you know, you know, the judge is always going to tell the jury not to watch anything about this trial. Don't do that. But we all know as lawyers that uh, that can be hard to hard to actually do and I saw that when you gave the opening statements that right at the end of that they said that the city had offered 20 million dollars and uh, I was wondering were you concerned about the jury learning of that you know as trials going on you know it went when they said the 22 million that was during his opening statement he recommended that song okay okay so so here's the, I think the most fascinating part of this trial is, is the concept of anchoring Right. Every single juror, we asked them, and, and we'll talk about the focus groups in a little bit because I think, I think that's the most fascinating part about this case, but every single juror we asked if the facts and evidence support a verdict, can you award $150 million? You know, We asked every single juror that question. The defense never threw out a number during jury selection. Right. One female juror, 20 years old, said, all I keep hearing about is $150 million. What number do you have? city of Chicago. Right. And they said, we'll get back to you. You'll hear about it during the trial. And I'm thinking, okay, we've got them anchored to 150. Right. They, there's no bottom number right now. And I, I personally thought that was a mistake. When a juror asks you a question like that, you, you might want to come up with an answer. I don't care if you buy it into it or not, but you need an answer right there. No, you get, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I'll never forget this story I heard from David Ball, you know, the, the great trial consultant yep. where he was talking about focus grouping a case. And, uh, and I don't remember what the facts of the case were, but the lawyer said he was going to ask for like, you know, 
$200 million. And David told him, you know, that you're going to ask for way too much. You're really going to annoy the jury and you know, you're going to piss them off and they're going to go the opposite direction on you. And so then when they do the focus group, you know, he asked for 200 million and one of the jurors says, you know, I can't believe that lawyer asked for 200 million. It, you know, I, I'm really, you know, angry. You know, there's no way I'm doing that. And there's no way I'm giving a penny over a hundred million. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me share with you my focus group stories here because that, that was our case because you know, I, I am a big believer in this concept of anchoring. And, you know, for example, I, if, if you divide a room in half in Atlanta, Georgia, all of lawyers, and you say on one side of the room, the population of Turkey is 400 million, just hypothetically. Now, the other side doesn't see that. And then on the other side of the room, you say the population of Turkey is 10 million. Now, where you said 400 million, most of those people are going to be like, no, I think that's high. I'll say 200, 300 million, but it's not 400. So they're anchored to that large number. And when they were anchored to this 150, 150, 150, I felt great going into my opening because when I said we're going to be seeking in excess of 150 million, not a person batted their eye at me. When they got up in their opening and said, we believe this case is worth 22 million, they kind of rolled their eyes. Right. And... I had an African-American juror named Curtis, great guy, and he was an alternate. And during my opening, he was like, he was crying. And I'm thinking, you're, you're an alternate. Don't, don't cry yet. I need, I need you scooting over to the next chair. And then when they said 22 million, he just folded his arms, put his pencil down. And I knew, okay, their 22 million is not going to fly here. Well, and they're, and and they're, annoying, that was they're annoying the jury right off the bat, which is, man, you, uh, you just don't want to do that. Um, well, uh, with this concept of anchoring, you know, I, uh, one thing I was going to say in Georgia, you know, we have a harder time getting to mention numbers in our, in our voir dire. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we'll have to come up with different ways to do it. And it's really up to the judge's discretion. But there are some judges here who will not let you uh, ask about uh, any specific numbers during voir dire. So it just mm -hmm. depends on what you, uh, what, what you get. Your there. venue. Yep. Yeah. It, but if you can do it, it I absolutely agree. It's, um, it's so important. Um, well, why don't we go ahead and uh, and talk a little bit about your focus groups? Because, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, for, from your standpoint, when they admit liability five months out, and, I, you know, one question I did want to ask about admitting liability is there, do you get to do anything at, at that point in trial to point out the fact that it took them, you know, a year and a half before they finally admitted liability? Or is it just treated as, all right, this is established, now we're only talking about damages? Uh oh, did we lose we him, Jeff? Can you hear me? Oh, now we oh, hear you. Now we. Okay, back. sorry, sorry, Alicia, sorry. We, um, we can we can it, edit that. <laughs> yeah, um, in in Illinois, once they admit, you can't get into how long it takes them to admit. Unfortunately, okay. we yeah. we tried, but they wouldn't allow it. The only thing that we were allowed to get into were two things. One was the size of the shelter. And two, a photograph of her laying on the pavement with the shelter pushed upright from some bystanders. So that was the extent of what we got in with liability. Okay. Okay. Got it. And before um, before we talk about the the sort of things that you did with your focus groups, Jeff, I'm, Steve, I'm trying to remember if we've ever talked about what focus groups are before. We talked about it in our uh, in our uh, sort of introduction special to sort of lay out the trials. But let's let's go ahead and talk about it now that we. 
uh, if anybody hasn't listened to that. But but again, we're telling everybody to go listen to our introduction of trial. But uh, right, but right. Uh, this doesn't you excuse you from doing the required listening. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is. I feel like you you two are professors and saying, listen, here's what's on the test, but still, I want you to read the book. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yes. So so our. We, we did four focus groups and a focus group is where we have anywhere from 12 to 24 people. And what we do is we, from a plaintiff's perspective, we always go through our worst case scenario, assuming yeah. this evidence comes in. Um, how are you going to react to this? How often do you want to see her in court? Will you get upset if she's not in court often? Coincidentally, she, she testified, Tierney Darden testified for less than 10 minutes and that was her only time in court wow. um, because of her pain. So we, we, we put on, um, a number of witnesses in a very short period of time. We put on from Tuesday through Friday, 14 witnesses, six of our doctors, five family members, and three experts. So we, we, we flew because the focus group was, was, were telling us you don't need all these people. Here's what we learned. And the focus group, by the way, is where we essentially give them the facts. Um, I always played the defense attorney in the focus group. One of my partners would play the um, plaintiff's attorney We'd give a mock closing argument just to get their thoughts, just to get some phrases that may resonate with the trial. Here's some of the things that made us nervous in the focus groups. Number one, I know paraplegics who work and function in our society. You know, number two, this is taxpayer money. Right. That's what people were saying. And that was our biggest fear because coincidentally, O'Hare had 500 million in coverage. And it was funny. So the defense attorney, you know, that's the first time I've ever seen 500 million in coverage in the right, case. Right, yeah. And the, the, the defense attorney is like, did you see my, how much coverage we have? I said, I did. What's your, what's your umbrella? You know, kind of like trying to, you know, <laughs> he did not find the humor I found in that, but, um, but it was, that, that was some of the things we're nervous about. Um, Tierney Darden was a 24 year old at the time. She had grown up as a dancer. She was a great, great kid. And she wanted to own a dance studio. That was her dream. And we went through that with the focus group. And the focus group, you know, going back to numbers, because Illinois, the largest settlement in Illinois history was 44 million. The largest verdict was 66 million. So this verdict was almost 80 million larger than, than the previous record, yeah. which is mind boggling when you think about that. But we never made a demand in this case. And we did our focus groups. The first focus group we did, we, we asked for a hundred million and we thought that might be crazy. And jurors like, that's kind of what you said, you know, before along those same lines, Steve, that's ridiculous. I give 70 or 60, but not, not, a, not a hundred. Right. Then we, then we raised it to 200 million and jurors were offended. This is plaintiff's greed. This is attorney greed. This is, this isn't about compensating her. This is about making attorneys rich. And they gave us less money. Then when we went 150 on our last two, the jury was dialed in on those numbers. They thought that was fair and reasonable in light of today's society and what, what everything is. So, you know, we, we tweaked and experimented with what numbers are going to work here. We were afraid of going too low and afraid of going too high because as both of you know, you go too high, you, you lose credibility. It's, it's no longer about compensating right. your client. It's about, you know, putting money in your pocket. That's how they perceive it. And 
the big thing that we knew we had in this case that was different than any other paraplegic case that these people knew about was her constant neuropathic pain. And we had pain specialists come in. We had exhibits. Coincidentally, no exhibit was used more than once in this trial. You know, we had about 28 to 29 exhibits we used with various witnesses. Every witness had their own exhibits. So the jury was not getting bored looking at the same exhibit over and over again. Um, so when you're saying exhibits, are you talking about demonstratives? Or are you talking about just the, the, the exhibits you were putting into evidence? The demonstratives, okay. like um, a day in the life. We'd use yeah. day in the life with various people. We use um, animations with certain doctors. You know, the, the, the main treating doctor who did the surgery um, the first day that this happened, I met with him six times to prepare him. And, you know, lawyers, doctors don't love lawyers most of the time. Right. right. And I'll just leave it at that. You know, at least in Chicago, they don't. Maybe, maybe down no, in no, Atlanta. No. And so they, <laughs> it is no different. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's universal. <laughs> but, right, right. but it was, we developed a good rapport. But I guarantee you, if I would have went up to him the night before trial and said, here's what I need or here's what I'd like, I would never got it. And I needed this rapport. And he he believed in what he was testifying in. And it wasn't like I was trying to get him to testify to something outside his comfort zone. Um, it was just getting him to testify, you know, realistically without looking bad. And these doctors are, are they're skeptical of us. You know, they, they are. And that's why it's so important to build these relationships. You know, Pat Selvey put on one of our pain specialists. I think he met with him eight times. And yeah. It, it, you have to do this as trial lawyers. It just, it doesn't happen. It's a lot of work, a lot of hours and trying to figure out the right message to get these jurors to understand not only the physical pain and mental suffering, but what they've gone through and will continue to go through for the rest of their life. Yeah. And talk a little bit about getting, a, you know, hiring a pain expert to come in, um, you know, cause it's something that we've uh, talked about in some of our cases and I, and I, you know, just, you know, cause sometimes it's, you can talk about pain, but it's really hard to show the jury what exactly are we talking about. And, and I like the idea of getting a pain expert in there that they can really sort of walk the jury through it and describe it. But can you talk about that a little bit and what your, your, your pain expert said? Sure. We, we had a pain expert. Um, his name is Tim Lubinow. He's from Rush um, Hospital here in Chicago. He is, I think, one of the top pain doctors in the country. And he's, and the reason he's so good is he's able to really explain what pain is, why she had this neuropathic pain, you know, because every juror has had some pain to some extent, or they know someone in pain. So why should we give this money to this woman for the pain? And we had exhibits that showed that when your, when your spinal cord is severed, you know, the, the import for the brain, the brain's not getting the information that the pain stops. You know, typically, right. the, it, so there was almost, you know, the way I described it in the opening is it's almost like we've got this road with a bridge, but the bridge is out. So we can't get from point A to point B because the bridge is out. With her severed spine, those signals saying you don't have pain, you don't have pain, we're not getting to the brain. So she was in constant pain because of this injury. And he was able to explain it in such a simplistic fashion that made sense. And even their expert said she's got pain, but she can live with it. And, you know, that, that's a tough sell to right. deal with. Right, right, right. Well, and I think that that's, you know, a lot of people, I don't think that's common knowledge. Like, I think a lot of people think that 
um, paralysis or partial paralysis leads you to, to not feeling pain. Like I don't think, I think a lot of people don't know that the reverse can happen where you're basically not receiving this message that you're not in pain. Yvonne, our first two focus groups was exactly what you just said. If she's got a, if she's paralyzed, she has no pain. She can't have pain. And that was just ignorance. And that was a poor, but it's, we knew now we have to focus on pain because that's what jurors believe. And that's because they know someone that's paralyzed. They know someone that, you know, they, they can't feel anything below their waist. So therefore there's, they can't feel pain. Right. And, and that's, you're exactly right on that. So we had to deal with that in, in our, you know, in focus groups three and four and throughout the trial, because it, it, it just because you're paralyzed doesn't mean you're, you're pain free. And that was a big issue in this case. And I think that was one of the big factors in the amount of the award. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One thing I saw in one of the news reports in here is it said that uh, there was some or a a part of the trial was a dispute over whether or not a spinal cord stimulator would address her pain. Talk to us a little bit about what she was doing to treat her pain and what, uh, what, what happened with that. She did about everything under the sun to try and get pain relief. And it wasn't like she sat at home and did nothing. She had the epidurals. She had all kinds of things. But our expert, our pain specialist, who, by the way, you know, and there was two different doctors that testified. I am the one that that uses that implants these these pain stimulators. I don't think it's going to do any good with her injury. Their expert, their pain specialist, who's never, never implanted a spinal stimulator thinks I think it could help. So you had the situation with one doctor that I do this for a living and I don't think it's going to help another doctor saying I've never done this, but I think it'll help. And it just, it goes back to credibility. And, you know, both of you know, as well as anyone with these trials, credibility is everything. And when they admit liability, you've got to find ways where they're not credible anymore because they are looking for that pat on the back. They're looking for the, that a boy, we admitted we're at fault, right. be nice to us, be gentle. And our job as plaintiff's lawyers is to show they're, they're not being sincere. Exactly. They're, they're still looking, they're still looking for half justice and half justice in these cases is really an injustice. Well, and, and, you know, and I was thinking about that when you just said that the, um, them saying that the spinal cord stimulator would work and your expert saying it's not going to work is almost the reverse of what you have in most cases. Cause usually our clients are, you know, have had a spinal cord stimulator put in and, and then it, their doctor says it's necessary and it's, you know, going to need to be, you know, kept up for the, a number of years. And then they'll bring in somebody from the defense saying, no, they don't need all that. Um, it's, it's, it's so true. And the other battleground that we knew we needed and, and had to have was our, our doctor, our physiatrist, our physical pain and um, rehabilitation specialist believed she needed 24 hour care, which would amount to present cash value of about 14 million in the future. They had an expert that said she needed about 2 million in present cash value. Um, and she just really needed two hours of care a day and possibly a dog to give her companionship. And when I said that in opening statement, I mean, there were 14 sets of eyes that looked at the defense attorneys like a dog, you know, who's going to, you know, who's, who's going to walk this dog in the winter in Chicago type of thing. You know, so I think there's, I, I just think that sometimes we as trial lawyers need to capitalize on, on mistakes made by attorneys on the other side. 
And we, you know, in an admitted liability trial and the Brian Panishes and the John Romanos will tell you that they're doing everything they can to get the pat on the back. We need to find those damage arguments where we can blow them out of the water to show how insincere they really are. Well, yeah. And not, not only are they trying to get, you know, uh, you come across as just, you know, that they need to get a pat on the back, but they're trying to make you sound unreasonable because they're saying, look, we're not saying we don't need to compensate this woman. We're just saying that the plaintiff's attorneys, you know, are asking for way too much. That's, that's exactly right. And that was a battle that we had in the focus groups. Um, but we, we got used to that argument because it's, we, we turned the focus on her, on Tierney Darden. They're, they put the focus on us. They put the gun sights on us as the lawyers. And we welcome that in, in, in many respects because, you know, if you don't have the facts, argue the evidence. If you don't have the evidence, argue the facts. If you don't have either, go after the plaintiff's lawyers kind of thing. And that, that was fine. You know, bring it on. It's, is that all you got? Um, th- those types of things didn't really bother us. And, and we embraced them. And, and I thought, you know, Pat Selby gave a remarkable closing argument for us. We were pumped. We were ready to go. Um, it was fun. I mean, these, you know, she is the best client. She is a phenomenal person. Her family is unbelievable. Um, here's a funny story about this case. We, in Illinois, certain judges will allow, many judges will allow the jurors to ask questions. And I don't know if you have that in in. It's uh, it's up to the judge. Certain judges allow, but most don't in Georgia. Now I've tried some cases down in Florida, and they do. You know that's pretty standard. Yeah. Now. So we had we had selected our jury of twelve. We had two alternates, and there was one juror that we liked, but his questions were, "Don't you think someday she's going to be able to walk, doctor? Don't you think her pain will go away after the trial?" And I'm we're looking at each other like, "Oh boy, we we made a big mistake." Well, the day before closing arguments, the defense expert is on the stand. We have a break. On that day, it's the solar eclipse or the whatever you call it during the day where there's right. whatever. He comes back. He's talking to the expert, showing him photos of what he just took you know, outside. And the court reporter then reports that to the judge. Judge calls in this juror, and the juror denies it. And long story short that juror gets booted off for talking with an expert during the middle of a trial, you know, which is a no, no. Right. Right. So, so our worst juror gets kicked off. On comes Curtis, our African American who cried during my opening. And I, I, I'm like, the, you know, it's with an eclipse. I'm thinking our stars are aligned right now. This is, this is unbelievable. And, and, and it really, it, as you guys both know, you need some breaks oh, to yeah. have a substantial verdict. And, Having a great plaintiff and family is so important. Even even we had her mom, dad, sisters on, they were on for less than 15 minutes. And we didn't cover the same thing. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. 
They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, and that's always so important is to keep them short, you know, have them come up there, you know, talk quickly about them and tell, you know, maybe one or two good stories. And it's just so effective um, to do it that way instead of just, you know, leaving them up on the stand where they can, you know, start to well, wander, it, it, or, you know, start saying other it, things. It, 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 but don't you think a lot of that comes, Steve, with, with, with experience? Yes. Because when you're a young lawyer, you're paranoid about missing anything. Yeah. And uh, you're, you're repeating yourself with witnesses. You're asking the same things. You're showing the same exhibits and you, you've got to get in and get out and have the confidence to know that this person is a piece to the puzzle. And this person is not going to win your case. This witness is not going to win your case. But if you put these pieces to the puzzle together, you're going to maximize your efforts. And I just think back when I was a young lawyer, I was paranoid. Probably ask the same witnesses the same questions, getting the same answers, oh, yeah. because you're just you're just paranoid that the jury didn't hear from witness one, witness two, and it's a it's a mistake I think we've all made at some extent when we were younger lawyers, and I guess the lesson to be learned is you have to have some confidence that they are listening and they are getting it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, and that, that is, it's so important. And, and, you know, I think, you know, on your, especially on your before and after witnesses and your, uh, you know, damages witnesses, just having them be short and to the point, but effective. I mean, uh, you know, and that, and that makes them more effective, um, you know, can just be so powerful. And, and just like you said, by putting your, your client up on the stand for only 10 minutes, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the defense did no cross-examination or, uh, zero. Yeah. Zero. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of guts to cross-examine somebody like that. So I, you know, and, and usually it's the right decision not to cross-examine them. Um, and we didn't, we didn't ask, are you in pain? Are you, you know, they, the, the, the jurors heard from all of our experts, all of our witnesses about her day. They saw her day in the life film. They saw these exhibits. We did not ask a single question about pain. The only question that was, I thought unbelievable is she felt like she's a burden to her family. Wow. You know, and, and this is a young lady that is just so special and she felt like she was a burden to her family. Mm. And those were her words, you know, it's, it's, and it came out so sincere and genuine and you get it, you know, yeah. that's, I'm sure. And, and that goes with the more you meet with a witness, the more you get to know your client, the easier that direct examination becomes. Right. Well, um, related to, you know, sort of getting the jury to understand these concepts, the, you know, the anchoring the value of the case, all that. Um, and looking at the verdict form, it's, it's a lot different from um, the ones we'll typically see in Georgia. Specifically, you've got these, um, you've got these line items for things like um, disfigurement, increased risk of harm, shortened life expectancy in addition to the things you might um you might see more typically in georgia or other places past medical expenses future medical expenses 
Um, and so I was curious, uh, number one, if this is kind of a standard sort of way verdict forms are handled in Chicago, if this was kind of special for this case. And, and two, how you help the jury understand how to, these different concepts, pain and suffering versus the future loss of a normal life versus disfigurement versus increased risk of harm, et cetera. Yeah, we, and that's an excellent question because we learned a lot about this in focus groups. Um, we initially had the verdict form where our economic damages were at the top. And, you know, you'll see on our, our jury form that it's $32 million for future medical expenses. Our experts said $14 million, so we knew that was going to be an issue on appeal. Um, right. You know, when we, our experts say 14 and they throw $32 million up there. But the more, when we had the expenses up there and the lost earnings at the top, by the time they got to the bottom, they were starting to get like juror fatigue. All right, we've already awarded that number up there, so we don't have to do this again. You know what I mean? Right. It, it just got to the point where they're like, I, I'm not going to, we're not going to make this a zillion dollars. But when we put these other non-economic items at the top, then by the time they got down to the medical, they're like, well, we know these are, these are gold. This is stone. We've got to put this in stone. We can't deny her this. So it was a psychological thing that we learned in the focus groups. And, and, you know, Pat Selby going back to Yvonne, what you were saying in his closing argument you know, loss of a normal life, past pain and suffering, emotional distress, those are pretty easy to, to argue, you know, when you've got someone like this. But the difficulty becomes, like you said, the increased risk of harm, which is going to be, you know, infection, UTI, all those kind of things that she can potentially have, um, bowel obstruction, you name it. Our right. expert talked about those. The disfigurement is, you know, you, you hold up a photo of a beautiful young lady dancing and then you show the photo of her today. It's night and day. day right. And it's sad. Um, the interesting one is the shortened life expectancy. And, and it's not a big ticket item in this case, but their expert says because of her injury, she's going to have a shortened life expectancy. Our experts all said with the appropriate care, she's going to have a mm. normal life expectancy. Right. So for that particular element of damage, you know, Pat Selvey put up a zero. We don't think she's entitled to anything because she's going to have a normal life expectancy. Right. But the jury awarded 500000 which once again, on appeal, may have made us a little nervous for that element. Doesn't cause a whole new trial. But that was just, you know, the, the past medical, the, the future medical expenses of $32 million and the shortened life expectancy of five hundred were two items that I, I think candidly, you know, a jury, um, I mean, a judge or appellate court could have struck down or reduced based on the evidence. Well, the, sh the shortened life expectancy, though, I mean, if the defense is arguing it, they're going to have a hard time saying, well, that was unreasonable when they're saying, you know, you should, you know, she is going to have a shortened life expectancy. Totally. But, but it was, you juxtapose that with the fact that they doubled her future medical, Oh yeah, yeah. Right. you know, that was the, that was the part that made us a little nervous, but, but the non-economic, like I said, the, the future loss for normal life, 56 million. I mean, that's, 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 that's a big number. Yeah. Right. I don't, yeah. I don't care where you're at against the municipality against a young lady that they were saying she should be able to work. She should have a quote, normal life, even with this injury. Um, you know, those are all things that you get nervous about for a verdict, but, but when you take a step back and you realize, and I'm sure both of you have seen this where you start to almost buy into what the defense is saying, you get a little nervous. 
right. and then you know, then all of a sudden the jury comes back. You're like, Whew, they didn't <laughs> buy it. <laughs> right, right. Well, well is, uh, so, so I have two. Yeah, sorry. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. I just I, so I want to make sure I I I get it. So in Illinois, is it? it to split these items out one by one, was this something you had to fight for given this case or is this something that's kind of typical in Illinois to, to list these different types of, of areas to award damages out separately? Um, I'd say yes to both. But yes, it's, it's somewhat normal. Yes, they fight it all the time. Candidly, I think that, you know, let's just look at past loss of a normal life and future loss of a normal life. I think that protects both sides because if the jury gives a ridiculous number for one or both of those, you know, it's easier to appeal when you clump them together. You don't know what the jury was thinking. Right. So that's the argument we typically make to the judge is this protects everyone. It protects yeah. your honor. It protects the defense. It protects us. And, you know, the defense never wants all these line items obviously. And another thing is, I, I don't think you ever want, if you think two things are somewhat similar, like let's assume you think, well, emotional distress and, and future pain and mental suffering, they seem like they're the same thing. You better put two different numbers on there. Because if you're going to put the same number on both, it's easier for an appellate court to say it's the same injury. Uh, is it? Right. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm-hmm. So, so the question I had on this was kind of similar to Vaughn's, but are, so are there jury charges that go along with each of these uh, line items that you can basically explain, you know, here's what normal life means or loss of a normal life means? Yeah, and it's very generic in Illinois. And, you know, pain and suffering is generic. Loss of a normal life is generic. Emotional distress is somewhat defined with that charge. But, you know, that's, that, it's, it's our job. Illinois pattern jury instructions essentially leaves it to the lawyer to argue and articulate this. And there's case law that distinguishes it. Um, but you're, you're going to run a foul with the appellate court if you're just saying 10 million for this and 10 million for that, because you're not distinguishing it. You're not giving evidence of, you know, I feel like there's a difference between physical pain that she went through and then the fact that she feels like she's a burden. Right. The fact that she doesn't want to go out in public, the fact that she's embarrassed to see her friends, the, you know, all of that emotional distress. Um, but, but the key is, I think, based on Illinois law, and I don't know about other states, you have to make it look like these are very distinct elements of damage so nobody can lump these together. Right. So I, I read somewhere in, tell me if this is accurate. I read somewhere that during the closing, the defense argued that she was entitled to, I think about 34 million or no more than 34 million. Did they go through this process of, of talking about all these different areas or did they just sort of throw that number out there? They threw it out there and, and think about rebuttal when right. in opening statement, they say 22 million. And then all of a sudden at, at closings, they say 34 million and they don't, they don't break it down. They just said that's more than fair and just left it. Give, give her her medical. What they said is give her her medical, which was the 14, give her her past, which is roughly a million, give her the lost wages, which they fought us on, by the way, the whole trial. And you know, that comes out to 17 million, double that double that 17, you know, give her another 17. And that that's more than enough to take care of her for the rest of her life. So no, no explanation of how they had all of a sudden within the span of a few days, jumped from 22 to 34. Zero, zero. <laughs> wow. I also just really don't understand the logic given 
you know, they've got it. They have to know at this point that you've got a good family. You've got a good client that the, you've got somebody who's young, young, who's got this like <laughs> awful permanent injury. I do not understand the logic of really trying to hit hard on what she's entitled to for lost wages, lost future earnings. I, I thought that was a mistake. Um, but you know, they fight us throughout the trial, but then when they talk about the verdict at the end, they say, give her the, that, because I just thought we dismantled their experts on this topic, Okay, yeah. you know, and I, I just thought they lost, they lost credibility right. in various stages in this trial. And it goes back to what we talked earlier. It's easy to, to make the city out to be quote, bad guys, you know, with liability, but when liability is gone and it's now damages only, how do you get a jury, I don't want to say angry, but how do you get them to really appreciate the loss that she's had for the last two years and what she's going to have for the next 52 years type of thing? How do you really get them? And when they go out on this island with some of these ridiculous arguments, ridiculous positions, it can only help us. Right, right. Well, and, and I say this all the time, it can be frustrating when a defense lawyer starts taking ridiculous positions, but you just got to remember that at the end of the day, this is going to help you with the jury. Um, yeah. And it's, you just, I've, I've come to the point where I just, instead of trying to fight them on some of these ridiculous positions, I want to string them along on these ridiculous positions right, to right. get them, get them out there. I'm not, you know what? Excellent point. You know, idiot. Right. Just keep going. Keep going. How much, how much, how much rope do you need? Keep going. Keep going. Goodness. Well, so one thing I wanted to ask you from a procedural standpoint is so in Georgia, if, uh, if the defense admits liability and if they put up no evidence and that, that maybe that's the distinguishing factor here, if they put up no evidence, then essentially, uh, they can steal your open and close in the closing argument, meaning normally the plaintiff, you know, uh, goes first, then the defense goes, and then the plaintiff gets to rebut in closing argument. But if in Georgia, if they admit liability and put up, you know, no evidence, so, you know, um, then they are allowed to steal both the opening and closing. And so sometimes just from a strategic matter, you know, they'll admit liability and put up no evidence just so they can have that uh, advantage in closing argument. Is there anything like that in uh, Illinois and, um, it, but it does sound like maybe they did put up some evidence of their own. They did put up some evidence of their own and, and you guys got to move to Illinois because that's crazy. <laughs> well, yeah. I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah. it, it's one of those strategic things. And then you, you always, you know, it's it, during those trials, it's always trying to get them to, you know, want to put something into evidence. Like, you know, you know, don't put in the, yeah. the medical <laughs> records. That are, that are, why, yeah. why don't you guys go ahead and put that in? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could see that, but I, I, we don't have that. And, um, you know, cause the, our, it's our burden. It's our burden on right. damages, even in admitted. So we've got to go twice. Um, I, I I disagree with with that in your state, but you know that, that's you guys. <laughs> right, right. That's your fight. He's like, that's your problem. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. well, that's your pubescent argument. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, 
Well, listen, what, uh, I feel like we've talked about a lot of different areas. What else, what else did you want to make sure that our audience knows uh, about this case? And again, I mean, this is, you know, we, we know this is just a tremendous result and, uh, you know, and especially just some great lawyering, you know, given the fact that they didn't admit liability, you essentially beat the hell out of them. They then admit liability, and then you've got to come up with uh, maybe a different strategy on how you're going to uh, present damages in order to still uh, keep the value of the case. You know, it's funny because, you know, there was, there was three of us primarily involved in the case. It was Pat Selby who ran the firm, myself, and Tara Devine. And while liability was going on, Pat pretty much let us go because I was taking the depths and Tara was getting ready with family. But then all of a sudden when they admitted liability, we were having what's known as a strategy meeting like every week. Right, right. Yeah. Like, so, so what is going on in the last week? And I'm like, nothing. But it was, it was, it, 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 it having a great family matters. The, the other key is I think this whole concept of brevity with some of these witnesses because it goes back to your confidence and knowing that you, you know, you could tie it all together, Steve, you could tie it all together, Yvonne, in your closing argument. You don't need every witness to say the same thing. I think they start to lose credibility as, as witnesses when they start to do that. This concept of anchoring is so important yeah. and it could be in a mediation. It could be in a pretrial. It could be anywhere. But when you can start this anchoring concept, it is imperative that it, that these people are going to follow you because they have, you know, think about this. We're their guides. We right. are the people that are going to lead this jury into the promised land here, into what's right. And I'm telling you right now, 150 million is right. And when they don't hear a single other number, man, that's good stuff. That's good. Because, you know, what are they going to do? I'm their guide. Follow me. It's 150. And it would have scared me more if from day one, they would have said 15 to 20 during jury selection. Right. Because now the jury's anchored into different numbers. The other key we had in this case was we had a number of young jurors who really, they, they didn't have a clue about the value in a case. They, they really didn't. Um, and I found that to be fascinating. Because it wasn't like you've got some 60-year-old like, well, I remember back when I bought my first house type of thing. We, we had eight of our 12 jurors were, were under the age of 28. And they just, wow. I don't know, I, I guess whatever you say is true on the verdict. We don't know. I don't know what a right verdict is. But I guess right. I can award 150. So that was, that was important to us. Um, you know, coincidentally, you know, their whole, it, it's being, having a great family. We had a great team assembled. We had great experts. And you know what, you know, Pat and Patrick did a great job with jury selection. Um, this is a once in a lifetime trial. I really yeah. believe it. It's, it's, well, it's, it, you know, it happens. It's, I mean, it's certainly uh, great work. I was just thinking about when you were talking about the, um, you know, uh, um, you know, being quick with your witnesses, your before and after. I mean, one thing that I always try to tell people is, you know, remember that the jury's time is valuable. And Absolutely. they don't want to be there any longer than they have to be. So don't waste their time. And, um, and tell them, you know, I'm going to be quick through some of these things because I don't want to waste your time. And we, and we know you understand. Um, but the other thing about your anchoring point that I thought was great was, um, you know, you, you're anchoring the whole time at $150 million and you're staying consistent with that. Where the defense in your case, you know, first didn't give them any number. Then gives them 22, then gives them 34. Yep. So then the jury knows, well, these guys obviously are just yep. throwing numbers out there. They're not trying to help us with yep. anything. Yeah. But, uh, 
Well, the other, the other, the final note is, you know, I, I just tried a case here in Chicago and we were fortunate enough to get a nice result for the first bike share death in North America. And like Tierney Darden, I did not have the family there throughout the trial other than when they testified. And bringing in the, that up during jury selection, are you going to hold it against me? Because this is my decision. I don't want them to hear some of this evidence. I don't want Tierney Darden sitting here, you know, in, in pain. Are you going to hold that against me? Because that's my decision. And they inevitably will say no. Yeah. They inevitably will say no. Because I was always, you know, taught you have to have your client there the whole time because right. the jury, you know, that's how I was taught. And now people are getting away from it. They, yeah. As long as you bring that up in jury selection and explain it, you're okay. Um, but I think it, it takes a special plaintiff because if it's just some guy with a broken arm and they're like, why is he not here? That, that's right. a difference than someone in permanent pain or, you know, horrific injuries. Well, I, I do think there's something to, you know, just being upfront with the jury about everything. And, um, and you know, we always forget, and I've, I've said this a number of times that, you know, you know, while we see a bunch of trials, so when we, we know when something is unusual for a trial, uh, these, the jurors normally have never seen a trial in their life. They don't know what's normal or what's not, or what's, you know, usual or unusual. Um, and so if you tell them, you know, that you're not going to have them there, and we've done it both ways in our practice, we've had, you know, times when we've kept the client there the whole time. And then we've had times when we you know, only bring in the client for uh, just a few minutes because of, you know, one of these reasons we've been talking about. Um, but the juries, you know, they, you know, they, they don't know that you're doing something that's not normal for a, a jury trial. Well, I, and I couldn't agree more with that. That's, that's so true. And the other thing is, you know, you watch all these TV shows about the law. I mean, they, they, they're solving these complex cases in 48 minutes. You know? right, right. So, you know, here, this, this last trial I was just on, I mean, it is all captured in a video that takes 10 seconds. It's the, our accident and the death is, is captured in this video that takes 10 seconds, but the trial lasted nine days. That's, right. that's kind of messed up. Yeah. It's kind of messed up. Um, but, you know, that's the way of the world, but these jurors are kind of like, what's going on? This is, you know, on a, you know, um, criminal minds, they would have got this like a half hour ago. Right. This would have been easy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Well, you guys got to move to Illinois. It sounds yeah. like. <laughs> I don't know from, from from what you told us about uh, before we started recording. I don't. I don't think we can handle the weather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we yeah. don't know what a hey, uh, we don't know what a pedestrian shelter is because unless you're block us from the sun down here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your pedestrian shelters have an umbrella. Yeah, yeah. Right. We, we, exactly. Yeah, those are our beach umbrellas. <laughs> well, uh, well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. And this has been, uh, been just a, a great discussion about, uh, I mean, just a, a record-breaking verdict for uh, a really deserving client. Let me ask you this. How, how is your client doing now? You know, she's, she literally was just out in Colorado seeing one of the foremost, at one of the foremost clinics for her back. And she's, she's hanging in there. And I guess that's for someone with this kind of injury, that's all she can do. She's, she's a remarkable remarkable human being. And if you met her, you would love her. And I say that sincerely because she's just a good person, just a, yeah. a really good person. And, you know, coincidentally, they tried to muddy her up a little bit with social media and, you know, that, that 
fell on deaf ears. It, it, well, it's such a dangerous tactic in a case like this. I mean, uh, if you've got yep. somebody who maybe, you know, maybe is uh, exaggerating their injuries, then maybe you can do that. But uh, if, in a case like this, you're not going to, that, that's, that's very dangerous. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> speaking of that, I, you know, I had a client that said he couldn't like, raise his right arm about a year and a half ago and on social media, there was a great video of him playing <laughs> beach volleyball. So yeah, I, I don't know what don't, you're talking don't you, about. Don't you love this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty good in volleyball. That's the yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Case, like case, yeah. Case wasn't worth much after that, but yeah. you know, he, he's got a shot playing. Right, right, exactly. Glad you caught that on video and put it in. Decided to get it out, knowing this case was going on. <laughs> yeah, those are the fun times. I want to thank well, you guys. This was really enjoyable. Well, we really enjoyed it, Jeff. And let me just remind our listeners that we've been talking with Jeff Kroll at Caveney Kroll in Chicago, Illinois. You can look up Jeff at caveneykroll.com. That's K-A-V-E-N-Y-K-R-O-L-L.com. Uh, and, and look up Jeff and, um, and Jeff, I, I, one thing I forgot to say is I noticed from your, from your, um, bio and your website that the, uh, your, your law firm is a fairly new law firm. You all started just in February. Is that right? We just started in February and it's, cool. it's exciting. You know, yeah. we've, I've known, I've known Beth forever. She's, she's one of the better trial lawyers I've ever met and we're excited. You know, we just, we have no money coming in, but other than that, <laughs> things are going great. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I've been there when we started out in- a firm and had nothing and we're just you know we, we we basically had one big case that we knew we were going to go try and either we were going to survive and you know win and survive or we were going to lose and you know go back to doing something else i guess and luckily we won you know so, yeah it's uh, it's it's easy to, to have that conversation within the four walls of your office but tougher right. when you're talking to your spouse and stuff right oh yeah 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 exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, congratulations on your new firm, and it sounds like you guys are off to a great start, and I know you'll do great things, and, uh, and thank you so much for coming on with us. We've really, uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, you, Ben. Thanks, All right. Jeff. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the Uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.